Good morning. It is good to see you all as we gather for worship this morning. I invite you to start with us with our word with the word of prayer as we begin our worship this morning. Will you say this with me? Come, Holy Spirit, come show us how we can be the spiritual heart of this community. Amen. And our children's story will be led by Miss Elmer Ravens. You guys know who that is? That loud. Alright, what do you know about Wonder Woman? She's smart. That's good. What else? Does she have any special powers? What? Yeah. She's very strong. Can she fly? Yes. Yes, she can move really fast. Really fast. Amazingly strong. And here is another one. Do you know who this is? Anybody know who this is if you can see it? I think I remember seeing that earlier. Yes, you would have seen it in the past week or so. Okay, give me a hint. See if you know. Yes, weightlifter. She's the Chinese uh, weightlifter, the one gold. And it's a she. It's another girl, but she is truly strong. She's not pretend strong. She is really stronger than any of us, right? And stronger than any of you. She can do I think. <laughs> Um, and that's strong in one way, but there are some women in the Bible that are strong in another way. They're strong in their spirit and their willingness to keep going even in bad times. And so which do you think is more important, being strong like with your muscles or strong in spirit and keep doing what you need to do even though bad things are happening the second one it's the most important and today when we're downstairs we're going to have a story about um, there's actually three women but two of them Naomi and her husband moved to uh, move from Bethlehem to Moab do you know who else lived or was in Bethlehem at some point in time yeah Jesus was born there wasn't he born in Bethlehem but and they moved because there wasn't much food so they moved to a place where they thought they could get more food and maybe jobs and things. And they had two sons. The two sons grew up and got married. And her husband, Naomi's husband, died. And she had no skills, no way to make a living. And she decided to move back to Bethlehem, even though there wasn't much food there. But at least she had people she knew there. And one of the wives of the two went to her own family. Because women back then didn't really have a way of making a living job. Can now, not back then. And the other one, Ruth, she said, I'm going to stick with you, your family. I care about you, and I'm going to help you. They went there, and they uh, scavenged for food. They built themselves a house. They did all these things on their own. So they were pretty strong women. They, they didn't give up when all these bad things happened. They just kept going until finally they got a house. They got food and they were able to live. Okay? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. For the lesson, For the lesson of a strong spirit. Of a strong spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's go downstairs. If you will, um, if, as you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I read from Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Sometime later, King Asuras promoted Haman, 
Hamadatha, the Agagite's son, by promoting him above all the officials who worked with him. All the royal workers at the king's gate would kneel and bow face down to Ammon because the king had so ordered. But Mordecai didn't kneel or bow down. So the royal workers at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why don't you obey the king's order? Day after day they questioned him, but he paid no attention to them. So they let Haman know about it just to see whether or not Mordecai's words would hold true. He had told them he was a Jew. When Haman himself saw that Mordecai didn't kneel or bow down to him, he became very angry. But he decided not to kill only Mordecai, for people had told him Mordecai's race. Instead, he planned to wipe out all the Jews, Mordecai's people, throughout the whole kingdom of Asuras. In the first month, that is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the rule of King Asuras, servants threw Pur, namely dice, in front of Haman to find the best day for his plan. They tried every day and every month, and the dice chose the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I wanted to ask you all a question, and this is going to be one that's probably going to date myself a little bit. And so I want to ask, uh, do you all remember the TV show Happy Days? <laughs> you know, it's like a lot of you remember, uh, remember that and remember all the folks and. Uh, I remember it, but I only ever saw it in reruns. That, uh, I'm not quite old enough to have seen it when it first came out, but even now, having seen it in reruns, that tells you just how long ago it was that I can be this far gone and still have only seen it uh, that way. Uh, but who was, uh, who was the most iconic character in Happy Days? I wasn't expecting quite that resounding a statement, but yeah, it was Fonzie. And I don't know about you, but every, every little boy my age who ever watched any Happy Days, I think we all wanted to be Fonzie at some point. We wanted the shirt, we wanted the, uh, the jacket, we wanted to be able just to snap our fingers and have a jukebox play, whatever it was, we wanted, all of, we wanted to be him. He was just that cool. But there was a moment that marked the, uh, the, the start of the decline for, for Happy Days. Now, it would still go on for several years after this, but there was a moment that kind of marked when, uh, when the show kind of started on the decline after a pretty good run, and, uh, and it was a moment that was so over the top that it has spawned its own way of talking about other moments like that, and, it, and that was uh, this moment. I don't know if you all remember when that was. This was the moment that, uh, that Fonzie jumped the shark. Uh, on water skis, still wearing the jacket. Like, I've not ever really been water skiing, but I have been swimming in a lake before, and I'm pretty sure that jacket is the last thing that I want to wear, but that's what, that's what he does. And, and it was so, in that moment, was so out of character for everything, and so hard to believe that any other moment that comes up in TV shows and movies, and that has even spread to other places now, uh, those moments are referred to as jumping the shark. Uh, when uh, those times when things are just like, that just doesn't fit, that just doesn't work. Other moments in TV history or movie history when that's happened. Uh, another show that I never did watch a whole lot of, except that uh, the theme song will always get stuck in my head. And as, as you sing it later this afternoon, you're welcome uh, in Dallas. Uh, the moment when Bobby Ewing was in the shower, that infamous shower scene when uh, he was supposedly killed uh, and was gone for the entire season. And oh, it was just a dream. And everyone's like, and so everything that happened that entire season before just kind of disappears after that and is made irrelevant. Um, 
Or in uh, one of the most recent Indiana Jones movies, uh, Harrison Ford is, uh, survives a nuclear blast by hiding in a lead-lined refrigerator. Those are moments that are referred to as jumping the shark. That they're even, by Indiana Jones standards, they're kind of outlandish and hard to deal with and hard to believe that, uh, that they actually happened. And, and I bring that up today because this is where we meet the villain of our story in Esther. Not just one moment, but a couple of different times when uh, the villain, whose name is Haman, uh, and, uh, and King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, whatever you want to call him, uh, when they jump the shark. When even for the big outlandish setting that they have created, even when it is too much uh, for, uh, for even them. Everyone else seems to understand this, but they don't. But it is kind of in character for... Uh, for them. It kind of does actually work for them because it's not, it is over the top, but we can see where it comes from. Because remember how we get to, how we get to this point. Uh, we're going to be starting in chapter three of Esther today, but there is a lot that takes place in the few, first two chapters. Because remember when the story starts, we get, we get introduced to Xerxes and we get introduced to Queen Vashti. Uh, and we get introduced to this lavish, uh, outlandish, larger-than-life lifestyle that, that Xerxes has when they're having a six-month party that is capped off by a seven-day banquet. Uh, the men have their own banquet going on, the women have their own banquet going on, and in the middle of this, where the wine is flowing freely, Xerxes calls out for Queen Vashti to come uh, to the men's banquet wearing her crown, and only her crown. Uh, and she says, of course, uh, nope. Um, now, that was enough. I mean, it was already a pretty crazy thing and pretty outlandish, even by the, by the context of the times. Uh, but then the next thing that happens is Xerxes says, well, and his advisors say, well, we can't have this. So uh, they, they, uh, they take uh, uh, Vashti's crown away from her and they kick her out of being queen. And uh, you would think that would be enough, but no, that's not enough because the advisors say, well, we can't have women getting any ideas here. So uh, uh, about possibly ever, ever usurping their husbands and denying their authority. So they pass laws to make sure that all the women know that they are under the control and the authority of their husbands. Um, that wasn't enough even for them yet because now they had a queen to fill. They had a, they had a spot to fill. And so they, uh, they throw a beauty pageant and they compel all of the young women to participate in this beauty pageant. And so they get the young women together and it takes them six months to get them ready before the beauty pageant happens. Uh, Esther, uh, who we meet, and Mordecai, who is her older cousin who has been raising her, um, she gets swept up into this, but she wins everyone over and she becomes queen. That was in two chapters. All of that happens. Um, I mean, there's just so much that's going on. And so now we're into chapter three. We still haven't been introduced to Haman officially yet. And we still don't really know what the plot of the story is, but that's where we're going to get today. But there's some things that we need to remember. One, when we're talking about the book of Esther, we have to remember that, uh, that God is never mentioned in the entire book. But we can see God at work in so many different places. And that all God needs is just an entry point to be able to work where we aren't, or where the characters aren't actively uh, keeping him from being at work. And we have to know something about the villains of the story. 
that everyone else seems to get and understand that these guys have gone completely and totally over the top, but, uh, but they haven't figured it out. They don't understand that they have quite gone that far. In fact, we'll go to the end of chapter 3 for just a second to see, uh, to see how this takes shape. Uh, we look at this. They're in the capital city of Susa, and, uh, uh, and it says, Driven by the king's order, the runners left Susa just as the law became public in the fortified part of Susa. Now, it's the, the law that is going, the new law that's going to come uh, after some other things happen. And it's, this is going to be a law that we're going to see kind of the different reactions of this. While the king and Haman sat down to have a drink, the city of Susa was in total shock. So these two guys, Haman and the king, are sitting down drinking to their success, and everyone else is going, oh my goodness, I can't believe that these guys have done this, and they're the ones that are in charge of things. This is the setting for how, for what is going to take place. The other thing to know is that evil will always overcompensate, and ultimately that's going to be what trips them up, um, because then they'll have no way to get back from that. But our villain in the story doesn't know this, doesn't know that that's exactly what he's doing. Um, and even sometimes the bad guys do figure this out. They do figure out that maybe we've overcompensated, maybe we've gone too far. And sometimes, um, and most of the time, they, uh, they don't ever come back from that. Either they don't care, they're completely happy with having gone too far and they're okay with that. Or they have gone so far that they can't ever make their way back to being a good person. It can happen, but it's very rare because it is so very hard to do. Now, we don't have to worry about this in this story because our villain of the story, Haman, is so far gone that he doesn't see anything other than what it is that he wants. He is the center of his own story, and that is all that's important to him, and that's going to be the problem. So we're back in Susa, where all of these events take place. And now, um, before we get to this, this last moment at the end of chapter 3, we've got to get to the build-up there. We've got to get to what leads to this moment when the people are in total shock and Haman and Xerxes or Ahasuerus are sitting there drinking to their own good fortune. At the start of chapter 3, Haman gets promoted. We don't know what he did to get promoted. We're just told that at the start of this, some time passes and Haman gets promoted. Now, given everything that happens in chapter 1 and chapter 2, I think it's safe to assume that whatever it was that Haman did, it was not rated PG. Uh, but he got a nice big promotion out of that. And the result of it was that all of the royal workers at the gate uh, where Mordecai worked had to bow down to him. And this wasn't just like a small at the waist sort of bow. Um, this was a full on your knees, face down bow to Haman as he passed by their gate. And that's what they were now required to do for whatever it was that Haman did that gave him all of this power and authority. Uh, and of course, one of the heroes of this story in the book of Esther is Mordecai. Mordecai, who is working at the gate so that he could stay in contact and help his cousin Esther, who is now queen, so that he could be close to her. Uh, Mordecai doesn't do it. He doesn't bow. He refuses to bow. Haman doesn't see this, but eventually some other folks will tell him that this is what's going on. We aren't told why he doesn't bow, but the assumption that we're, we're led to believe is that it's because he's Jewish. But there's a couple of things to note. Um, remember that at the end of chapter 2, 
Mordecai stops an assassination plot against the king. He hears these two guys uh, uh, talking about what they're going to do. He tells Esther. Esther tells the queen, and then the, the king or tells the king, excuse me, and then the king goes and finds those two guys and impales them uh, for for their attempted assassination. And we're not told anything of anything that ever happens to Mordecai because of that. No recognition, no honors, no rewards, no anything like that. And then at the start of chapter 3, Haman, who we're not told what he does, uh, gets this huge big promotion. This is going to be important because this is going to come back later on that, uh, that, uh, that, this, thing, that this thing has happened. Uh, so we've got so we've got that piece of it in there. So there's already some setup for some uh, for some uh, for some uh, uh, not those two guys not getting along well at all. And uh, some other things to note: uh, the Jews, Mordecai and Esther's people, and Haman and his people, they don't just in general get along well with each other. Like they just don't like one another. And there's a long history uh, behind that. And uh, honestly, in this, Mordecai just makes a mistake. Um, it's a reminder that our heroes can make mistakes, that they aren't, they aren't going to be perfect, especially in, in the book of Esther. They are not going to be perfect. They will do things wrong. Mordecai should have bowed. This wouldn't have been out of character for them. There wouldn't have been any prescriptions against, uh, uh, against Mordecai uh, doing that. There, you can read some commentaries, and they will try to go to great lengths to show why, uh, why Mordecai as a Jew shouldn't have, bowed in front of, uh, shouldn't have bowed in front of Haman. They can go a long way to try and do that. But the other thing we have to remember is that, uh, remember, God's not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. These were, Mordecai and Esther were folks that had lived first in exile, and then after the Jewish people could go back to their homeland, they stayed out there. They stayed in what's called the diaspora, meaning these were the folks that stayed in those dispersed places outside of their homeland. They didn't go back. They probably didn't have a whole lot of education in what it meant to be Jewish. They didn't have a lot of knowledge of their own religious life. They just had maybe a sense of that their God was important, and that their history was important, but they didn't know a whole lot about it, so they wouldn't have really known whether or not it was okay for them to bow in front of Haman. Um, all that is to say that Mordecai probably should have bowed. But this conflict between these two men, between Mordecai and Haman, starts in what amounts to an inner office feud. And that's where it should have stayed. But we remember that Haman is an evil villain and that he is the center of his own story and that in that place, the thing about villains and evil is that they are always going to escalate things. They can't help themselves but to do that. That's a part of what that means. Now, smart villains and smart evil people will know that you don't escalate things very quickly, that you've got to tell a good story to draw people along so that when you get to your evil nefarious plot, people will go, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Haman is not one of those guys. Haman is not that smart. Uh, Haman is uh, just straight up dumb, evil villain. That is his role in this. And so we see him very quickly escalate things as soon as he finds out what Mordecai, uh, that Mordecai hasn't been bowing in front of him. Uh, and so we get into this uh, verse 6. But he decided not to kill only Mordecai, that's Haman, who is going to kill someone because he didn't bow in front of him? Okay. Uh, you know, that would have been escalation enough. But also for people had told him Mordecai's race, instead he planned to wipe out all the Jews, Mordecai's people throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. 
This is another one of those moments when this is exactly what Haman is doing. He is jumping the shark. He has escalated things so far, it just doesn't even make sense. Haman may be a dumb, evil villain, but he does have one really good skill. He is a great manipulator. And he can manipulate the king in a great ways. To compare him to another uh, character from another favorite series I have, if you're at all into Harry Potter, um, this is, uh, Haman looks a lot like Dolores Umbridge at this point. Dumb, but a great manipulator. That is exactly kind of where, where that's going there. And uh, villainous manipulators like this, I get good at it because they can take true statements, true things, and they can tie them together with lies to tell a compelling story. And so this story then plays out. Uh, Haman goes to, uh, to Ahasuerus and plays a game of two truths and a lie. Now, uh, the king doesn't know he's playing a game. He just hears the story that he's telling. But this is, what, uh, this is what Haman is doing. The first thing he says is that there are a group of people that exist in pockets in your kingdom. That is a true statement. These were the Jews living in a diaspora, the dispersed people, the you know, they were living in pockets, little tiny communities. He's giving the implication that, ooh, they want to take over. They're, they've deliberately done this because they're a threat to your empire. There were lots of people from lots of different places living in little pockets uh, all around. You know, it's like, it'd be the equivalent today of saying, oh no, uh, there are people living in little Chinatowns all over the United States. There have been people living in Chinatowns for at least 100 years, 150 years. That's just where folks settled. It doesn't mean a whole lot of anything. But that's the first truth that, that Haman tells. The second truth is that he says, their laws are different from everyone else's laws. Which is also a true statement, because they do. They have the law that they, uh, that they try to follow. Those that have been able to hold on to their religious teachings and their religious life and to their faith, they try as best they can to live according to the law. That is also a true statement. The lie comes when he then says, and they refuse to obey the king's laws. Now, this makes sense as he tells the story, but they weren't, that they were always trying to follow the secular laws where they lived. You know, they may not like it very much, but they, but they weren't refusing to obey any laws. But it makes sense in the way that Haman is telling the story. It also helps that uh, Haman decides he's going to sweeten the deal a little bit. That he doesn't just tell him a good story. Uh, he also says, and uh, you know, King, I'm going to give you uh, 10,000 kickers of silver uh, just to make my point. Offers him a nice little bribe. Anyone know how much a kicker is? Well, I can tell you, it's the equivalent of one talent. Anyone have any idea how much a talent is? A talent uh, is the, was the equivalent, those two, they're like equivalent measures, and they are equivalent to something roughly like between 60 and 75 pounds of whatever you're measuring, in this case, silver. And so 10,000 kickers of silver is about the same as 375 tons of silver. That's a lot of silver that, uh, that he's promising. And uh, I found one place, this is to put this in even more perspective, the size of the bribe that, uh, that Haman is making here. Uh, the king could have expected to bring in and tax revenue and tributes and well, also probably some bribes also and some other, whatever, whatever his revenue sources, about 14,500-ish uh, talents 
uh, throughout the course of a year on an annual basis. So this is like the bread that he is offering is almost a year's worth of revenue. And the king is going, hey, that's a pretty good sized deal. Now, it's not that Haman had all of this money, um, but it was what he was expecting to take in plunder from all of the Jews when he was going to go out and, and, uh, and kill all of them. That's what he was kind of expecting to take in. The king, so impressed by all of this, and who doesn't really need probably the money, but just is impressed by the size of what and the audacity of what he is doing, says, you know what? Keep the money. Go out and have your fun. Go out and deal with the people the way you want and uh, uh, go, have, go have fun. Um, and then this is when the law goes out and it begins to be circulated. And this is then when we get uh, the end of chapter 3, when Haman and uh, King Xerxes are drinking while everyone else is going, holy cow, I can't believe that they are about to do this thing. So let's put all of these pieces together. We still got a lot more of the story to go. Um, this is where we get introduced to the plot of the story. Now we know the scale of what it is that our heroes have to overcome, and it's big. This is a big thing that they have to that they have to try and work through. But sown into the story are the seeds of the villain's destruction. Because what's the downfall of every villain? They don't know when to stop. They're the center of their own story. And when you're the center of your own story, you always want more because you always see more out there for you to have. There's, there's nothing there to check them, nothing to tell them that they've had enough, nothing that humbles them so that they can see what's going on around them. Because that's the thing about humility is that it keeps us from putting blinders on. It gets us to a point where we go, oh, wait, there are more things going on around here than just us. And we realize we're not the center of our own stories. Esther and Mordecai will eventually overcome what happens because even though they take big risks, and we're going to start into what those risks look like next week, they're patient, they listen, and while they may not completely know it all that well, they have left space for God to work. And that is what's going to make all the difference. Haman never does that. He can't. He's at the center of his own story, uh, and so he just never can see, he can never see this. And so he's never going to recover from this. The hard part of it, though, is that how many times does it feel like uh, the evil villain has incredible power? And it's often because they do have incredible power. Haman has an enormous amount of power right at his fingertips that the king has given to him. Uh, and so it feels like it is a daunting task to somehow overcome uh, what it is that he has planned it means it's hard to have faith, and it's hard to wait, um, and, uh, and to know that that evil can be overcome. And it's hard then to endure everything that is going to come with it before that happens. But we always have hope. Because we always know that through everything that happens, even through all that we endure, that, uh, that we will come through, that ultimately evil and the villains will fail because that's what they always do because they have sown their own seeds of destruction into the middle of it because they will always go too far. We always have hope that, we, that, that that will be overcome, that God will be victorious, that God is still at work. 
but it is hard to do because it's hard to endure through all of those things that happen before he gets there. But we know that he ultimately will be the victor. Doesn't make it easy, but it does give us the hope that we need to face all the things that are going on around us. As we uh, prepare to go from here today, this is a message that we can take out to a world. It's not, it's not a bright, shiny, easy message, but it is one that says you can always have hope. Even when the bad guy seems to have all the power and have all the cards and be the one who is uh, in control of everything, we can always know that God will overcome. And that is a message we can take and we can share with all those who are around us. And let us do that and share that message in the name of the ultimate hope that God has given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Let us take that hope in his name. Amen.